The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We've looked, uh, the last time that we, last two times that we looked at Exodus in a broad overview of these plagues, and now we're going to go verse by verse, but in a, in a, in a, in a good pace to see what God would have for us to learn in the account of these plagues. Now, as I've said before, in the first more or less six chapters of Exodus, we basically have a focus on Moses, the deliverer, on Moses, the human instrument of God. And uh, we see his efforts to act on his own uh, initiative as he uh, tries to deliver uh, Israel from Egypt by murder and seizing a moment when he's a young man and is very frustrated and angry at the way that the Egyptian was treating the slave um, Israelite. And so he kills him and hides his body. And we saw that that was uh, an, an example of man acting in his own strength and his own wisdom and only bringing the judgment of the nation down upon him as he had to flee for his life. And then we saw all the years of his training, really, 80, uh, 40 years in the desert. He was 80 years old when he was called. Um, and we saw the accounts at the burning bush. We also saw some a aspects of Moses' own heart, how reluctant he was to accept this commission, how reluctant he was to go, and how he really wanted God to send someone else. So we've seen all that, and we get a really good closing glimpse at it. Even after the uh, uh, battle has been joined, he's come and he's done some miracles for the Israelites. They've come to believe in him. Now the time has come, and they're uh, commanded to make bricks without straw. And one last time, we see aspects of Moses' unbelief and of his, his failure and courage at the end of chapter 6. Look at verse 28 through 30 in, in Exodus 6. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? That's the end of chapter 6. And so, where is Moses' focus at that point? He's really focused on himself. He's zeroed in on himself. Does Moses have the strength to bring Israel out of Egypt? Does he have the ability to do that? Absolutely not. And from this point on, the focus is totally going to be on God. Even though Moses and Aaron stand there with the staff and do all these things, we know it's God. It's not Moses and it's not Aaron. And so the account, which we believe Moses wrote, does everything it needs to do to get Moses out of the way. It reveals his weakness, his sinfulness, his unbelief. God and his power becomes the focal point. And from this point on, this is the arm of the Lord, and we see it in the plagues. So beginning at chapter 7, verse 1, I'll read through verse 7 and stop, and we'll move through it in that manner. Beginning at verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, or look, I have made you like God, Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Stop there. 
At the end of chapter 6, Moses' focus is on himself. Immediately beginning of chapter 7, he says, I am here. I am the Lord. I have made you like a God. And that's a strong statement that he makes here, isn't it? I've made you like a God, or like God, he says, to Pharaoh. And then he says, Aaron will be your prophet. So it's a fascinating thing. Immediately he says, now Moses, I want you to get your focus off of yourself, and I want you to look at me. I want you to realize that I'm the one that sent you. I'm the one that's called you. And so therefore you should go and stand. And it's a strong language. He says, you will act as God. You will be like God standing in the presence of Pharaoh. This is a fascinating thing. And later on in the account of the Exodus and the time in the book of Deuteronomy, this idea of a prophet is established. Turn, if you will, just put your finger here or something. I look over at Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. It's a couple books over. But there at the foot of uh, the mountain, the mountain of God, where the Ten Commandments were given, uh, it says that God spoke in a loud voice, and the voice was so loud and the sight so terrifying that the people did not want to hear God's voice anymore. They were terrified of hearing the voice of God. And you know, one psalm says the voice of the Lord twists the oaks. It's a mighty thing to hear God speaking. And so uh, this is one of the few times that God compliments his people. Usually he has negative things to say about them. They're weak, they're unbelieving, they're sinful, they are hard-hearted and stiff-necked. But here he commends them. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire any more, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words, that, that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. This is the establishment of the office or the role of prophet. The key feature here is, I will put my words in his mouth. He's going to stand and represent me, and he will speak, so that you don't have to hear my voice anymore. But if you don't listen to the prophet, I'm going to call you to account. And so there's a delegation. And if you go back to Exodus 7, that's exactly what's going on here. Moses is standing in God's place. I've made you like God to Pharaoh. When you speak, it's as though God is speaking. And Moses would punish uh, Pharaoh when he acted wrongly and reward him for proper responses in God's place. Proud Pharaoh would have to apply to Moses himself for relief from these plagues. But really we know from all the groundwork laid in the first six chapters, it's not Moses, it's God. And it's the role that God has called Moses to. And Aaron would stand as Moses' spokesman, just as Moses stood as God's spokesman. But neither Moses nor Aaron were free to write their own lines. They're not free to ad-lib. They're not free to add to or take away from the words that God had told them to speak. They have no freedom in this matter. Back in Exodus 7 now, in verse 2, he says... You are to say everything I command you. That's very important, isn't it? By the way, Moses' failure to obey this principle would cost him his trip into the promised land. When he stepped outside what God told him to do, and instead of speaking to the rock, struck it, and the water flowed from the rock, he lost the right to enter the promised land. And God would not hear, no matter how much he prayed, no matter how much he yearned to enter the promised land, he would not be permitted to go in. 
So it's a very serious thing to be a prophet of God and to stand there. You cannot do anything except what God has commanded. What he says, I must say. What he tells me not to say, I must not say. So in verse 2, you are to say everything I command you. Now this is still true, I think, in a different sense, but similar to ministers of the gospel today. In 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I'll just read it. You can look there later if you'd like. But it says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Preach the word. That's what we're called to do. We're called to preach the word. It's not for us to add or to take away. It's for us to preach the word, simply and clearly. Be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. 1 Timothy 6.3, it says, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. What does it mean he's conceited? He's prideful. He's, he's speaking out of his own mind, out of his own heart. He's not obeying God. God didn't tell him to say that. And so he's teaching false doctrines. So it's not my right as a preacher to improvise, to make up doctrines, to tell you my opinion. I have to follow the word. Nor am I allowed to drop out anything that God's put in his word. That's the real temptation sometimes, isn't it? You are to say everything I command you to say, verse 2. Everything, there's some unpleasant things in there. There's some hard things in there. Well, that's a challenge, isn't it? You are to say everything I command you to say. In Acts 20, verse 26 and 27, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, I declare to you today, this is to the elders at Ephesus, he says, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. I didn't hold anything back. It says of Samuel that he let none of God's words drop to the ground, like water. You know, he's kind of holding God's words and some of them drop to the ground. This is the role of a prophet. He's not free to drop out anything that God's commanded to say. Now the next thing that he says in verse 3, God promises to harden Pharaoh's heart so that God will have full opportunity <clears throat> to pour out all his miracles and his judgments on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Look at verses uh, 3 through 5. He says, but I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Now, I've mentioned before, the purpose of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart here is linked to his, uh, his display of all of his power, that the full range of his power might be put on display, so that all of the plagues would be done, not just some of them. I think we could say we could go right out to the 10th plague and say God wanted the Passover done. He wanted the Passover lamb sacrificed. He wanted the blood painted on the door. He wanted that picture of Christ because Christ would be sacrificed at the Passover time, the very thing that we will celebrate this week. Everything was just perfectly done, wasn't it? And so there needed to be all 10 plagues. Now when we come to the topic of God hardening a man's heart, we come to a very holy ground theologically. It's a very serious thing, and, and uh, I'm not going to treat with it tonight. I'm just going to mention a few things, and God willing, in two weeks, uh, next Sunday, of course, Sunday evening, there'll be no uh, service. you just spend time with your families. 
by the way, this uh, Monday, Thursday is 7 o'clock this week, so please come. I mean, it's going to be a good time of worship as we consider what God's done for us, but no services on Wednesday night. But God willing, we'll be here in two weeks and have an opportunity to look at the hardening that God does of Pharaoh. But it's interesting that the hardening is mentioned here first on God's part. Have you ever heard it said, and, and much is made of the fact that Pharaoh hardened his own heart first, and then ultimately then God hardens it? Well, here, actually, it's the other way around. The first time it's mentioned, God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that I may perform all of these signs. And so he begins with his own activity. <clears throat> now, modern, modern people have a great deal of difficulty accepting the concept of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, or any heart being hardened. And we're going to talk more about this, God willing, in two weeks. But I think this much is said. It implies that if he did not harden Pharaoh's heart, the full display of the plagues would not be done. Pharaoh would have kicked out earlier than that for his own reasons, for selfishness perhaps. <clears throat> uh, just uh, enlightened self-interest we talked about on Wednesday and talking about providence. That's all it is. Just, wow, I can see, what's, I can see where we're heading. And we, we stop at plague four or plague five. But God wanted all of the plagues done. And so he says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And, and this is a, a recurring theme. And so we're going to talk about it, God willing, in two weeks. And we have accounts of Moses and Aaron's obedience to the commands of God in verses 6 through 10. They follow his instructions perfectly. Look at verses 6 through 10. Moses and Aaron did exactly as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. And then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. And so we see very much at this point a battle, I think, in the heavenly realms. We've talked about this before. I don't believe that this was just a parlor trick on the part of the magicians, the Egyptian magicians. I think they had satanic powers to do supernatural things. And so this really is a struggle in the heavenly realms as well as in the earthly realms so that it could be seen. There was a battle going on between God and between Egypt's gods, the demons. And so, I mean, the simple thing is, can you make a snake into a staff into a snake and vice versa? I can't, and I've never seen it done. But it seems that not only could Aaron's staff do this as he threw, threw down the staff, also the magicians were able to do this. This also shows the instrumentality at this point of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. He sees that and his heart is hardened. So the hardening of heart happens also externally. He has an excuse. He has a way out. Oh, well, look, they did it, so that minimizes the power of God. Would have been disturbing to me when... The magician's snake gets gobbled up by Aaron's snake. That would bother me. But uh, there's always indications there of the superior power of God, but still an out for Pharaoh. And you can say, well then, there's nothing to this. And so his heart becomes hard and he will not listen. He will not obey and he will not do what God has said. So it's time for the plagues. The time for talking is over. It's time for the plagues. And so the first plague comes in, the plague of blood. Verse, chapter 7, verse 14, on to the end. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. 
and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This, this is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and over the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take this even to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. This is a great judgment on Egypt, is it not? I mean, this is a great judgment. Have you ever seen one of those satellite photos of Egypt? It's just desert except along the Nile. And that's where all of the, the uh, farms are. That's where the, the, uh, all the alluvial flooding comes and brings uh, soil that can sustain crops. It's all right along the Nile. And so when the Nile goes bad, when it turns to blood and it stinks and fish die, it's a great judgment on Egypt. It's also a judgment on Egypt's gods. They worship the gods of the Nile. Specifically, Hopi was one god, the female god of the Nile, and also Osiris. So this is a specific judgment on Egypt's gods. And is it an accident that the water turns into blood? I don't think so. Could this represent all of the uh, Egyptian slaves or the Israelite slaves that had died over the hundreds of years, the suffering? And so you've given my people blood, I'll give you blood to drink. It's the very same thing he says in the book of Revelation when a judgment like this comes. In Revelation 8, 8 and 9, it says, The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And John, in the book of Revelation, links it to the, the martyrdom of the witnesses of Christ. You shed their blood, and therefore you were right to give them blood to drink. And I think there's the same connection back here as well. Now, it's not a total judgment on Egypt because they're able to get some fresh water. I mean, how else would the magicians be able to do the same things? Where did they get the fresh water from? Well, they had to dig down. They had to dig along the Nile, and they found some fresh water there. And so there was still the ability to sustain life. He's not wiping them off the face of the earth at this point. But it's still a great judgment as the river stinks and it's horrendous. I think you should also notice in verse 19 the detail. It says, even the water in the wooden buckets and the stone jars turned to blood. Now that's incredible, isn't it? These are the kind of details that show the power of God. Imagine an Egyptian housewife has just drawn some water from the Nile. Uh, she's going to use it for cooking or something like that, and she sets it on a table in the kitchen maybe. And uh, she, she, she was there. She was the one that drew the water just a moment ago. And then as soon as the word goes out, she goes and gets that water, and she pours it into the pot where she's going to boil it or something like that, and it's blood. Can you imagine her screaming and dropping the bucket? How did that happen? And it didn't just happen in one place. As the, perhaps as the wives got together and shared, they all had similar stories. And this went on all over Egypt. 
Only God can do this kind of thing. Now, I'm not quite sure what the magicians did to replicate this, but it wasn't at that kind of scale. To me, that stone bucket or wooden, wooden bucket or jar that had fresh water in it a moment ago and then suddenly it's turned to blood is very much like the detail of the wine vinegar at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. You remember that story and referred to it on Wednesday night in Acts. That there's a detail, a prophetic detail, right before Jesus dies. Jesus knew that all things had been completed. In order that scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. A jar of wine vinegar was there. That's just what John says, John's gospel. Oh, a jar of wine vinegar was there. And they lifted it up to his lips and he tasted the wine vinegar and said, it is finished. And he died. Now, how did that jar get there? A little jar of wine vinegar, somebody brought it there and put it here at the foot of the cross. Did they understand what they were doing? Oh, I don't think so. But God knew that a detail, a tiny little detail, had to demonstrate his power. And so it is in the details, in a little uh, stone jar or wooden bucket that the housewife had just drawn that God shows his power. Have you ever heard explanations of this? Say, oh, there's some red mud that came down from the flooding. and up. It doesn't line up with the text. God did a great miracle, a great act of judgment on Egypt, and there can be no denying it. And as I've already mentioned in Revelation 8, it's going to happen again. Only this time it's going to be all over the world, not just the Nile River. It's going to be all over the world. Now, it's interesting that the magicians are able to replicate it somewhat. But I mentioned before, they didn't do what I would have done if I had power, okay? What would you have done? If you had power and you want to demonstrate power, you would reverse the curse, right? Say, okay, God has done this, I will undo it. But they couldn't do that, could they? Their power was circumscribed by the word of God. God had said the Nile will turn into blood and blood it will be until he says differently. All they can do is create more blood. Just like later, they're going to create more frogs. Just what we need, more frogs. So there's power to imitate at this point. That's what Satan does. He's an imitator. But there's no power to reverse. And so we see the plagues beginning. Now in chapter 8, we see frogs and gnats and flies. And we have just time to look at it quickly. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace, in your bedroom, and onto your bed, and into the houses of your officials, and on your people, and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will go up on you. I'll read that again. The frogs will go up on you. Ew. I mean, what, would that, what was that like? One in your pocket, one down your neck. The frogs will go up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff and over the streams and canals and ponds and make the frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt. And the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Now, I mentioned a moment ago and focused on, the frogs will come up on you. Who's the you in the verse? Who's Moses talking to? Well, he's talking to Pharaoh. Well, I don't know how many frogs it took down his neck before he summoned Moses and said, you know, take the frogs away. Pray to the Lord in verse 8. 
that take the frogs away from me and from my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said, Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs that he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. So this is the, the plague of the frogs. Again, a great inconvenience, but no great attack on Egypt. It's just really attacking comfort, I would say, in a major way. It's really hard to be comfortable with frogs everywhere. And Pharaoh knew it and said, please, I will pray to the Lord. And, and, and or, or he asked Moses, pray to the Lord and remove the frogs. And notice that God connects the removal of frogs to Moses' prayer. In verse 13, he says, the Lord did what Moses asked. So there's a connection to prayer, but it's still the hand of the Lord. Now, it's interesting that he also says, I will only leave the frogs in the Nile. This, again, was grace from God. The frogs were a benefit, ecologically. He's not trying to destroy Egypt. He's going to bring them back. But yet there were all these frogs that died everywhere, a testimony to the power of God. And after all of this, when relief came, Pharaoh hardened his heart and relented and turned back from what he said he was going to do. How many times has this happened in your life where God convicts you of something and you make a promise to him because the pressure's on and there's some extreme circumstance and you say, Lord, if you'll only get me out of this, I'll do such and such. I'll start going to church regularly. I'll start praying. I'll, I'll do all these good things. And then God is gracious and you forget what you've committed to do. And Pharaoh gives us a clear demonstration of this. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.